Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Geraldine Ritter, and we are talking about her new memoir, Bone by Bone, a memoir of trauma and healing. On May 12, 2015, Amtrak 188 derailed outside of Philadelphia going 106 miles per hour. Eight passengers were killed and many more severely injured. Geraldine Ritter was thrown from the train with such force that she sustained catastrophic injuries to her chest, her abdomen, and her pelvis. Found unconscious, unable to breathe, and suffering massive blood loss, she was not expected to survive. After enduring weeks in the ICU, dozens of surgeries over the following years, unremitting pain, PSTD, depression, and opioid dependence, Geraldine was faced with a daunting question. Beyond the mere survival after trauma, where is the path back to joy? With humor, grace, and a no-holds-barred honesty, she describes the journey back to life and offers support and encouragement for others. Bone by Bone addresses the long-lasting impact of sudden trauma and extends hope from the perspective of someone who has been there and back. A recognized expert in healthcare policy, Geraldine Ritter is Executive Vice President at Organon and Company, a Fortune 500 healthcare company dedicated to the health of women. She was formerly Senior Vice President at Merck and Company Inc one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. For more information, you can visit her website, which is GeraldineRitter.com, and that's G-E-R-A-L-Y-N-R-I-T-T-E-R.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Geraldine to the show. Good day, Geraldine. Hello. Well, I am happy to have you with me today. Um, I love stories of resilience and survival and uh you know because <laughs> those are the kinds of stories we need in days like today. So Well um, thank you. I'm yeah. really delighted to be here. Thank you. Now writing the memoir, you know, about that particular time, which was obviously it was challenging beyond description, tell us about your decision to write the story bone by bone. I just found my, it was so extraordinary what I was going through. I would have never in a million years thought that I would find myself in that situation. I had woken up on a very ordinary day, taken a business trip I'd taken a hundred times, and ended up with, you know, in the ICU on a ventilator with the surgeons telling my brother I was unlikely to make it. So 
as I healed very slowly, I thought about writing the story, and I, I, I tried to really research trauma. I wanted to understand what was happening to me and why I was having so much pain, the depression. So I started reading every memoir I could find, every book on trauma I could find. And ultimately, I hope that this book is the book I was looking for. I wrote it because I was given an incredible gift, the gift of survival. And a gift that big needs to be shared. And survival isn't easy, you know. I, I, I can take no credit for surviving, you know, the crash that night. But getting my life back, and gradually recovering, weaning off the opioids, going through dozens of surgeries. I am proud that I have survived that and that I live a really full life today. So my, the, the book is my pay it forward. And if somebody else out there picks up a nugget of something that helps them, that's exactly why I wrote it. Good. Yeah, because, I mean, the circ the circumstances of your injury was I mean I just couldn't imagine well actually let me put it this way you you go through a great deal of detail about your injuries in the book and <laughs> and, and sort of so I had to admit to you that there were parts that I just skimmed over <laughs> because you really paint a good picture, you know, of the extent of the injuries. And I'm a squeamish person. I turn my head when someone on TV gets a shot. I understand. I, I totally understand. And, um, you know, I I didn't want to be gory, but mm -hmm. I thought it was important to the story that people understood how really hurt I was. Um, this was no ordinary accident, and by the numbers, if you look at the mortality rates of all the different injuries that I had, you know, there really was very limited, little chance they thought that I was going to make it. So, you know, I tried to just kind of put it all out there, <laughs> the good, the bad, and, the <laughs> and some of it was definitely <laughs> ugly. <laughs> the thing is, that, I mean, there will be people who will, you know, I don't say joy reading, but they, they, they would appreciate you is, uh, um, detail that you went into, you know, because of either um, maybe that it's um, much more expensive than they're doing, you know, or going through, or, but, you know, there are people who would be very happy with that. And it is a really important part of the story because, like you say, the odds of, of survival or even, a fraction of the injuries that you had, you know, would have been difficult, you know. So, um, now, one of the things that I noticed kind of early on in the book is you um, mentioned some of the other people who were involved um, in the accident, um, other passengers. So, tell us about... Um, you know, including them in the beginning, you know, kind of like, you know, were these people that you um, came to bond with? Or how did how did you go about kind of making sure to include their, uh, what happened to them in your story? Yeah, I really wanted to give the full picture of the crash. And there's two 
ways. Um, I took stories that they had already made public, that were published, so lots of news reports from the time of the accident, um, articles that some of the other passengers wrote afterward, uh, news reports that were done not only at the time, but also on the one-year anniversary, for example, of the accident. So um, a lot of the information was from public sources. Uh, because I didn't want to use anyone's story without their consent, but, but if they had chosen to make it public, um, I uh, tried to amplify that and share their perspective in the book. Um, also, there, there was one of the other survivors uh, sitting in the first car, like me, that just through coincidence and a mutual friend, uh, we did connect, and I described his story in more detail in the book uh, with his full permission. His name is Michael Walsh. His journey was as onerous as mine, but, but different. You know, every everyone is different. And I really enjoyed getting to know him because he understood, you know, and, and trauma can be very isolating, very alienating. Even though I had tons of people around me, a loving family, people that wanted to do nothing but help me, you still felt like they couldn't understand, you know, because they hadn't been there. They couldn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that the one thing you mentioned, you mentioned the uh, term uh, polytrauma and, you know, the importance of, um, of recognizing or uh, speaking with individuals who experience that. So I hadn't heard that. And, can you explain what that is? Sure. Sure. And I, I have to say, I had not heard the term either <laughs> until uh, I heard it used to describe me. Um, but doctors call, uh, you know, call, call polytrauma um, or use that term in order to describe a patient who has experienced trauma to multiple body systems. So my digestive system was very messed up. I couldn't breathe on my own without a ventilator for uh, well over a week. I had extensive orthopedic injuries. My pelvis was broken in half. My rib cage was crushed. They ended up kind of rebuilding my rib cage with metal plates around the ribs and then screwing in all the little fragments of bones to, to make ribs again. Um, you know, I, my bladder was ruptured, you know, all, all, all sorts of issues. I had vascular issues, blood clots down both legs. So when you've mm -hmm. got that many organ systems involved, the trauma and the risks are really magnified. It's, it's not really one plus one. It's one plus one equals two. Unfortunately, it's one plus one equals three in terms of the danger to the patient. Wow. Yeah, you know, I, um, and, and I would think that, you know, though, that the challenges of having that, those multiple systems, you know, and, you know, being able to speak to someone who has similar, um, would be, I mean, obviously it's, you know, you have that understanding, like you said, that, that maybe, um, you know, friends and family wouldn't, wouldn't understand. And, and so I, I think, right. I guess, um, for, 
for people to recognize, for family and friends to recognize that it's, it's not not them, <laughs> you know, that you know right. that uh, you know because sometimes you know people will think, well, you know, why can't I? Like, why can't I help Geraldine? I'm, you know, I know her better than anybody. Kind of thing. Right. 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 And you know, they they could help me, and they certainly did. <laughs> um, but I I think it's from what I've read, it's it's extraordinarily common that. The patient still feels that distance, still feels that that sense of isolation because nobody else can feel what they're feeling. Um, but, you know, the, the opposite is true as well. My recovery journey lasted a couple of years. Um, and, well, frankly, it continues today. But the but, but two years of pretty intense total disability from work and, and multiple surgeries and recoveries and such. And, you know, the perspective of my husband is really important as well. You know, he was having an ordinary day that day as well, and he ended up on a nine-hour search through every Philadelphia hospital to find me. I was a Jane Doe. Nobody knew who I was or where I was. Um, And then he was instantly thrown into the role of a full-time caregiver. Once I got out of the hospital and came home, I I couldn't get out of bed by myself. I couldn't even roll over to take the pills on my bedside table by myself because of the pain. I certainly couldn't get myself to the restroom or put myself in the wheelchair. So, you know, he was feeling after a while, you know, he suffered as well. And and I want to recognize that because I know so many caretakers experience similar feelings of, isolation and that, you know, maybe the patient isn't always so grateful <laughs> for what they are doing and how they are life. You know, everybody's focusing on the patient, right? People came to see me. They brought me gifts. They brought me flowers. You know, less people think to check in on the caregiver and how they're doing. Yeah, that, that's important. I, I actually um, self-published the book, The Heart and Soul of Caregiving, and had some oh. um, stories of people, you know, uh, who, are, who are caregivers. And, and you did uh, make sure for <laughs> we focused on the, the essence of the, the care received. Yeah. You know, that's in the process, uh, the care receivers kind of, their essence is lost. But anyway, you know, and then kind of talking about the joy and the challenges of, of being a caregiver. So um, it, it, it's a it's a, a challenging role, but it can be very rewarding as well. So that's that's right, and I I just yeah. want to want to honor all the caregivers out there because um, I now appreciate it in a way that I didn't, you know, yeah. during the first years of my recovery, how difficult that is. Yeah, yeah. Well, now in, in addition to to Johnson's husband, you also have uh, three kids. Austin, Bentley, and Stephen. So um, they too were kind of thrown into, you know, you know, mom expecting mom to be home from the train, you know, and then all of a sudden there's this the whole whole world is shaken up. Um, now I wanted to, if you wouldn't mind, uh, talk a little bit about you know, the how individuals handle trauma. You know, you handled your trauma a particular way. Your parents 
kind of had had a different way. Jonathan, your husband had you know had had a different way. So, can you tell us about how of those uh, dealt with trauma, your trauma? Sure. You know, and, and you're exactly right. We all did deal with it differently. Um, some, you know, some overlap, of course. But um, you know, the kind of the kind of person you are, the your go-to default coping mechanisms really come out in a situation like that. It is so incredibly stressful. Um, for example, my, my husband was really angry for quite a while. He had a lot of anger at, at the train and at the circumstances and, you know, all sorts of things. Whereas initially I just felt bad. I just felt incredibly sad. It, you know, in the very beginning we were just grateful. We were so grateful. Yeah. We were kind of on a on a high of gratitude because I did live and I didn't get a deadly infection. And even though I'd broken vertebrae in my neck and three in my lower back, I was not paralyzed. I didn't have a major brain injury. The doctors couldn't believe it. One doctor told me he had no medical explanation for how my body could have absorbed that much force and not shaken up my brain. And, you know, so, so we were, we were so grateful, but then, frankly, I crashed. <laughs> you know, when, mm-hmm. when, the rea- when reality set in and I moved back home, you know, and, and the surroundings were familiar, but nothing was the same. Uh, you know, I, I, I described all the things I couldn't do and it was so depressing. Um, you know, I now know that that, that massive physical trauma and, you know, constant bombardment with pain, you know, very often leads to depression. And I didn't understand that at the time. I thought maybe I was just being weak or was I wallowing in it? Was I giving in to the pain? Maybe I wasn't fighting hard enough. And I, I felt guilty for being sad because eight people had died. I was alive, I was home with my family, recovering. You know, I didn't think I had a right to be sad. So finally, as my kind of brain fog cleared around several months, I started to, that was when I was looking at it, to try to learn more about what was happening with me. was happening. Why was I having so much pain when some of the bones had healed? Why did it still hurt to breathe? Why was I depressed when I didn't think I had any reason to be? And, and you know, why was I so jumpy? All of those questions I had. And like I said, I, wrote every, I read almost every trauma memoir out there that I could find. I read medical textbooks. And I started to understand that, that this was normal. This was not a weakness on my part. This was expected. <laughs> And, and then yeah. I started to feel less guilty about grieving and, and about needing more time off work and those sorts of things. So I, I think that's power. It's powerful. It's empowering to learn and to really understand. That helped me feel a little more in control. Um, I, I also 
you know, I, I opened myself up to trying new things. I, I had every medical intervention. I was on, you know, the strongest painkillers out there, fentanyl, oxycontin, oxycodone, all at the same time, all in high doses for months wow. and months. And, and as I started to wean off the narcotics, you know, my pain increased. Plus, I had to go through the withdrawal symptoms that, that are universal when you've been on those drugs for that long. So, you know, my, my determination to get off of them was rewarded by nausea, chills, shakes, just awful, you know, irritability. And I, I would sit in front of the fire in my bathroom and just stare at the wall all day long. Um, so it was really hard, and I thought, okay, this isn't working. <laughs> I'm going to do something else. <laughs> and for the first time in my life, I actually was willing to try things like deep breathing exercises and meditation and gentle yoga. I'd always kind of dismissed those things. I'm sort of embarrassed to say. You know, I thought they were too <laughs> true and silly and not real. <laughs> um, but... It helped. It helped. I, I have to say, there was no lightning bolt. It wasn't sent release. But again, right. it gave me back a sense of control over my own body. It was something I could do that actually did help with the pain. So, you know, those are those are a couple of things that I tried that helped pull me through. You know, maybe the last thing I'll just say um, is my friends. You know, my family was wonderful. The kids. The kids got me out of bed. The kids were the reason I made myself get out of bed. And mm -hmm. my friends were so awesome, coming by, taking me out, making me laugh. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a cliche to say laughter is the best medicine, but there's truth behind it. <laughs> Looking at something fucking ridiculous or, you know, laughing about the I called it the granny potty I had, you know, kind of this raised mm -hmm. elevated toilet. And, you know, they would joke that I needed the handles in case I had too much wine. And, you, know, just, you have to laugh, you know. You just have to laugh or otherwise it would have been it would have been a very dark place. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes it easier. And, you know, coming from your uh, business uh, background with Merck, you know, I could see where maybe some of the uh, – the environment wasn't pro meditation <laughs> the breathing exercises, you know, uh, non pharma uh, approach. Yep. Um, but but I think that your example of having that experience going through what you did, both with the pharmaceuticals and the non pharmaceuticals, it has played a part in your recovery. You know, I think that's uh, important. And I think you you um talked about uh trauma being a whole body experience. You know, that it seems that uh that's like a whole body approach to healing. Yeah, you know, you're you're so right. That's a it's a good way to put it. Um I had I was focused on the broken bones. I was focused on the fact that I didn't have a spleen anymore, so I was gonna be very vulnerable to infection. I was focused on the fact that my digestive system just did not seem to be working. And I didn't think I, – I, I argued with my trauma surgeon, actually, when she suggested counseling for PTSD. I, mm -hmm. I mean, she was a wonderful person. And 
I, it was one of these days I had back-to-back appointments all day long for follow-up care with the urologist, with the neurologist, with, you know, orthopedics, you name it, <laughs> the vascular surgeon. And then, you know, at the end of this long day, I, I, I had the check-in with the trauma team, and she said, how are you doing? And I started telling her, well, the hip still hurts, this. And she goes, no, no, no. How are you doing? Mm-hmm. And I just felt, I, A, nobody else would ask me that. <laughs> and I didn't even know that. I was like, I, 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 I had started to think of myself as this collection of body parts that weren't working, you know. And right. she started crying. And she said, you know, Carolyn, I recommend that all of my trauma patients get counseling for PTSD. And I was like, what? No, I'm, I wasn't in combat. Nobody tried to hurt me. I wasn't a victim of, of, of violence or, or anything like that. I, I just didn't think that applied to me. I said, you know, it's an mm-hmm. accident. I'm a rectal person. Accidents happen. And she said, well, you know, just, just keep it in mind. And I now know from my research that, you know, this is, this is biochemical. <laughs> Massive trauma, massive uh, pain triggers changes in the brain, triggers the release of certain chemicals. And, you know, that the PTSD is not a sign of, you know, somehow I was just weak and overwhelmed. You know, they, they've done brain scans. They can see it on the scan. And once I understood that, it helped me deal with my own kind of biases and, and stigma around depression and, and, and my mental health, and I really realized how connected the physical and mental are, you know, but, but I had to read it scientifically to really digest it, and then everything yeah. I was feeling. Yeah, well, you know, and, and that's, the, you know, education and, and understanding and also that uh, um, having the support of, of people who have gone through similar. Now, um, you talked, you were talking about, um, that recovery and, and, uh, the depression and the guilt, you know, and that's the first thing that popped in my head was the idea of survivor's guilt, which is, you know, a topic oh. I've talked about. So, but there's also, um, I think another aspect, you know, which was survivor's guilt, um, your son Stephen composed a song for you. Yeah. You are an angel, and in it, yeah. he said it should have been. Um, that had to have been heartbreaking, <laughs> but also touching at the same time to hear that. You know, it really was. Stephen was eight years old. I mean, he was he was little. You know, he was he was a little kid, and you know, he he. At one point, you know, I was in the hospital for quite a while. In the beginning, my kids weren't allowed to come see me. When I was on the ventilator, I was immobilized. I'm in a big neck collar. I'm just covered in surgical drapes. You can only really see my eyes and my forehead. And I, I couldn't talk because I was on the ventilator. My lungs had been so damaged. And they just thought it would be too scary for the kids, which is a strange thing. I'm thinking, like, I'm too scared for them. Like, oh, wow, okay, I must be really bad. <laughs> and so they weren't allowed to see me for a couple of weeks. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were worried. 
they were worried. And his eight-year-old self said, our, our, our nanny just, you know, been a wonderful part of our life for well over a decade. And she said, Stephen, you know, why don't you, why don't you make a song for Mom and we'll send her a message. And so that's, that's what he came up with. And yeah, it, it hit me right in the heart. I'm, I'm so grateful and so proud of my boys because this, you know, not only is trauma a whole body experience, it's a whole family experience. You know, I, I would, I, I traveled all the time. I would get, get off a plane from Asia, not having slept for 36 hours, jet lagged, and I'd be dragging my suitcase, you know, across the middle school baseball field to the bleachers. <laughs> like, I, mm-hmm. I, I made every their games that I could, you know, and now I'm yeah. out of my back. You know, for months. It was it was really dramatic and scary for them. Yeah, it is. And that, and that, I wanted to bring that up because, you know. Yeah. I'm sorry? I'm sorry. No. Well, I'll just keep that up. I just wanted to bring that up because it's a family thing. You know, and, and I, you know, I really wanted to talk. I mean, that was a very touching part in your book, you know, when I read that and, and of course, uh, Jonathan's reaction to it too as well. So, um, but, but it is a family. It's not just an individual experience. It's a, and it's, it's really, when you think about it, you know, your children will be forever, um, molded by that experience, you know, um, and, you know, and, and everyone around you. So, I mean, the trauma affects everyone, everyone whose life you touch. So, we are actually halfway through the show, Daryl Lynn, so I'm going to take a quick break. And I do want to invite listeners, if you, if you would like to ask Daryl Lynn a question, you can call in at 619-789-4359. Um, and then when we come back from break, Daryl I want to talk just a little bit about you know, Amtrak and liability and, and just kind of how, I mean, that's a, another component of this, in addition to your trauma, your physical trauma. Okay, so we'll talk about that when we come back, all right? All right, thank you. Okay. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc., and we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests 
and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guest is Geraldine Ritter, and we're talking about her new book, Bone by Bone, a memoir of trauma and healing. Um, again, you can find out more about Geraldine and her book by visiting her website, which is www.geraldineritter.com, and that's G-E-R-A-L-Y-N-R-I-T-T-E-R.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Geraldine. Great. Great. Um, okay, so um, as I mentioned before break, um, I wanted to just talk briefly about the Amtrak portion of this. I mean, you know, when it comes to trauma, um, you know, there's uh, the issue that you had to deal with with your physical injury. But also added into that was this corporation, Amtrak. So, um, and now, can you kind of just briefly um, kind of summarize maybe how, what, what their response uh, to the accident was? Sure. Well, it came out pretty quickly after the accident that the train was going way too fast. Uh, it had left. It had pulled out of Philadelphia. It was not even out of the city yet, really. And it flew into the sharpest curve in the Northeast Corridor, which is right outside Philadelphia. That curve has a maximum um, speed limit of 50 miles an hour for a train, and we hit it at 106. The engineer, the, the official National Transportation Safety Board, report or investigation into the accident found that the conductor, quote, had lost situational awareness, is what they described it as, which is kind of an odd phrase. He, he was not on drugs. He was not drinking. He was not on his cell phone. By all accounts, he had been a very good train conductor, um, but he lost track of where he was. And it, it, it's kind of inexplicable. I really struggled with that. We're all human. We're all make mistakes. But it's hard for me to understand. I, I, apparently he was distracted. There was some radio chatter about other trains. You know, we'll never really know. But he dead into that curve at more than twice the speed limit. And, you know, not surprisingly, um, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. And... What frustrated me, you know, because like I said, I, I can understand that we make mistakes, all of us. I struggle to understand the magnitude of that one, but what really bothered me is that there's a technology that's been around for decades and actually has been recommended for passenger trains for decades, and it's called positive train control. You know, these days we have self-driving cars, right? It, 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 it's mm -hmm. just... Flows, it monitors the train's speed, and if the train is going twice the maximum speed limit, it automatically breaks and, and slows the train down. And Amtrak had installed that technology all up and down the route, except on this curve, which was just inexplicable. Mm -hmm. I, I guess they thought nobody would speed up that fast coming right out of the city, but 
that bothered me. And actually, shortly after the accident, Congress passed a law giving the railroads even more time to install, because they had passed a law requiring the installation of positive train control around the country, but they gave them years to do it. And even after the accident, they extended that deadline for a couple of years. So I don't want anybody to be afraid of riding a train by the numbers. It's one of the safest, uh, you know, modes, modes of travel and probably way safer than, you know, driving on the highway. But, you know, it was only last year, only about a year ago, that the government certified that the railroads were in compliance. And that technology is now deployed on all the major passenger railroads. So I'm glad for that. I'm sad that it didn't happen much earlier because those eight people that died would still be with us. Yeah, very much so. Now, what role does forgiveness have in this? I mean, you know, with the, the and this is for all people who have experienced trauma that is a result of another an individual's action. How how can how does forgiveness fit in business even today? And I'm a person of faith. I believe in forgiveness. That doesn't make it easy. <laughs> and like I said, I had a bit more anger at the company than at the individual conductor, but that's not how everyone reacted or everyone felt. Um, and, you know, there, there was a criminal case that was brought but I knew it was an accident, and so I, I think it would have been harder for me to forgive if this was deliberate, if somebody had tried to hurt me, or if, you know, even if it was, you know, deliberate violence directed at someone else that happened to hit me. But I can understand an accident. It, it's hard because you think about it like if somebody drove their car at twice the maximum speed limit on a sidewalk and killed eight people, we would call that reckless driving, you know, and, and, and why when it happened on a train did we say, oh, well, he, you know, just got distracted. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But, but, you know, we, we all just all human. And, you know, heaven forbid, you know, I should be grateful that any time I've gotten distracted while driving, it hasn't led to an accident. So, I think forgiveness is important. You know, I really had to let go of of, of anger at, at the company or at my situation and just deal with it. But, but really, if I'm honest, I felt more sad than angry because it just seems so senseless. You know, it, it shouldn't have happened. Yeah. There was no reason for it to happen. You know, that's what I grappled with more was the senselessness of it. You know, what does that mean? Why, why something so ridiculous, ruined so many lives. That was a harder struggle for me than, than forgiving the person that was driving the train, um, was, was making sense of something that seemed so senseless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it really, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it, it's just really tough when, when you think that things could have been different if, someone who was just, you know, paying more attention, you know, something as simple as that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and 
people have said to me, oh, you know, God had a plan for you or there, there was a reason you survived. And I struggle with that, too, because, like I said, I, I am a person of faith, but I, I don't really think about it that way because that would mean he didn't have a plan for those other eight people. And that's, that just can't be true. You know? <laughs> they, they deserve to live as much as I did. And, you know, as I was kind of mulling this over in my mind, I, I, I came across the concept of grace, which I don't think I had really understood before, but, but the Bible really describes grace as an undeserved, unmerited gift, and that hit home for me. I didn't deserve the gift mm-hmm. because they didn't to die, but I was given a gift, and I can accept a gift. And, you know, we don't all get the same gifts. <laughs> and so that, that, is, that is how I kind of made peace with the accident is, yes, it happened. Accidents happen. And I received this fantastic gift of a new phase of my life. Yeah, yeah, very much. Now, in your book, you talked about post-traumatic growth. You know, so, I mean, it was... You know, the idea of there being growth after such a, uh, you know, it's not the bright side or the positive part, but, it is, but there's a growth aspect. So it sounds like what you're talking about is that post-traumatic growth. It, it absolutely is. And I believe, you know, it, it, it is silver linings in the accident, because certainly I would never wish that it had ever happened. But, you have to try to find something good. You've got to find something positive to take away from the situation. And I do believe that I have a much sharper perspective now on the things that matter. And the things that used to bother me before, I might have argued about it at work or with my family. I am much better now at just letting it go. <laughs> because <laughs> intentional. I, I am about how I spend my time and Am I spending on time on things that matter? And if I'm not, then then what on earth am I doing with this gift I was given? That's that's not right. And so I, I think my boys too. You know, we there's the three teenagers now. You know, and and but we hug each other. We say I love you. We, you know, and and I think they are more empathetic. You know, so it's 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 not all the negative. You know, an experience like this does help us grow if we let it. <laughs> if, if we're willing to kind of try to reach for something positive out of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, it, it uh, like you said, it, it affects everyone. So, I mean, I mean, it just completely changes the trajectory of the lives of not only your family, but again, every single person that you touch, even even the the nuns, you know, that will, you know, have prayer for you, you know, their prayer for you, maybe not, you know, one of those things that you would have set up yourself, necessarily, but I mean, it's, but they're affected. I mean, they, you know, it, yeah, so. I stunned and so grateful I received such incredible outreach from, you know, folks I hadn't spoken to in decades, 
people that I never knew, you know, friends of friends of my parents who had heard about this, knew that my parents were at my bedside for months. And, you know, there was, there was a church in Minnesota. I don't think I've ever set foot in that state that made a quilt for me because some of the members had been at my parents' church in Colorado for a service and heard about my story. And, and so this quilt from the church in Minnesota via the church in Breckenridge reaching me in New Jersey, I was really touched. You, you, you mentioned the nuns. One of my mom's childhood friends is a nun, and, and she supervised a, a rest home for elderly nuns, and I'm not Catholic, but my mom and I just smiled at, at the idea of a hundred elderly nuns saying prayers <laughs> for me, and how special is that? I mean, yeah, I'm just mm-hmm. the strangers. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah uh, uh, a party line to the guy, or <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, it's, it's a good thing. It was really touching, and that was one of those maybe silver linings again. It's just so much kindness and prayers coming my way, and I felt it. I really felt it. It mattered to me, and it definitely helped. Yeah, that's that's important. Um, So now, a couple, um, when you were going through the recovery, there were times when, you know, it was like, uh, you know, difficult for you to speak, you know, I mean, mean, it was uh, intubated, you know, that that made it really difficult. But also, you know, there were different phases of uh, whiteboards or that kind of thing as far as communication. So, can, what can you help about, um, uh, you know, for caregivers, uh, how best to um, help someone um, who has difficulty with communication, you know, or communicating, you know, their particular needs? Sure. It's, it's a great question because, you know, I, I wrote about this in my book. When intubated, I could blink once for yes, twice for no, once I regained consciousness. And that was all I could do. It was all I could do. And and one arm was in a big cast. The other arm, they later realized actually was broken, but it was not casted at the time. And And they brought me this little letter board so I could point to letters and try to spell out what I wanted or whether I was hot or something itched or something like that, and it was maddeningly frustrating. You know, I felt like I'd gone back to preschool, you know, trying to trying to point to one letter at a time, but that's when my family got me a whiteboard. At first, they got me a little one, and I'm writing with my left hand, you know, one word, try to erase it, write one more word, and, and people would start trying to guess. It was so slow. People would start guessing. You know, they, they wanted to help you out. And they were never right. <laughs> oh, you, you want something to eat? Oh, you're hurting? Oh, you're, you're too hot? No, no just wait. I'll get there. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 I would write out what I actually wanted to say. And finally I wrote, I have a lot to say. I erased it. Need bigger boards. <laughs> so they went and got me this giant whiteboard and, and kind of propped it up beside my bed so that I could say what I wanted to say. And, you know, we laugh about it, but it was empowering for me. And I think that's my message for caregivers is 
as slow as it might seem when somebody's trying to communicate, it was the one thing I could do. You know, when I was in a babe, I couldn't speak. And so having somebody listen to me, read my scribbles, wait patiently while I tapped out a word, and then act on it. If I was too hot, they, they bought, bought little clip-on fans and clipped them all around my room. My body was having trouble regulating its temperature. If my foot itched, you know, it, it gave me a sense it was of control. You know, when you're laying there in the hospital and you're immobilized, it, you know, people just came in. They did the procedure they needed. I, you know, I was just, I was just a body. <laughs> And so that sense of agency, of of being able to communicate even slowly and then having people act on it was really important to me. It was really, really important to me. Finally, I got tired of not seeing my boys, and I just insisted that my husband bring them right now that day. It was about a couple weeks after yeah. the accident. And he went and did it. You know, we drove an hour and a half to our home, packed up the kids, brought them, and they got to see me in the ICU for the first time. And, you know, it, it was so special. And I knew what I needed, and it meant a lot that people were listening to me and then acting on what I had asked for. So yeah. it may be slow. You know, patients may have crazy asks, but don't underestimate the value that, that you play as a caregiver in, in just listening and being patient and helping out with what they've asked you to do. Yeah. And, you know, and like you say, you know, um, with someone with, with such a sense of a lack of power, that, that it's very important to, to be able to um, – feel you have some control, you know, even if it's a, quote, a small thing, you know, to be able to do. Yeah, and that, that sense of control, it's important. It, you know, in the beginning it was very small things, and sometimes it was silly. I, I think, you know, about a week after the accident, I'm being rolled in for another surgery, and I, I motioned for them to stop and, and to bring me my board, and I started writing notes of things that they should tell my assistant at work to do with my email. <laughs> and, also, and, and I wrote this note that, you know, sorry, I couldn't do it myself, but I didn't have my phone. You know, like, yeah, I, I had a lot better, bigger problems than not having my phone. <laughs> like, my, my assistant's coming out and okay, we'll take care of it. We'll, we'll, we'll tell her. <laughs> you know? and, and I, you know, I, at the time now I realize how crazy I was being, but, you know, that's where I was then. <laughs> Well, you know, we're back to about 10 minutes, and, and I want to, you know, as, as your role as, as an executive vice president um, at a Fortune 500 healthcare uh, dedicated to the health of women, um, what, um, what is your view of how the this pandemic, the, the COVID aspects, how has that impacted the health of women? Oh, it's, it's had just a, such a dramatic effect, you know, in our whole society, of course, and, and for women and men. But the numbers mm -hmm. demonstrate that they've done studies, they've done surveys, that women have been 
are disproportionately affected. Um, one study I read said we've lost 30 years of progress for women in the workforce because so many were laid off, unable to continue working, their business closed down, and that's traumatic too. You know, we've been talking about traumatic injury, but, you know, relationships can be traumatic. You know, the loss of your livelihood or your profession or your career dreams can be very traumatic. And we're at a time in the world, in our country, where so many people have experienced that trauma all at once. And I think it's really important to recognize this. Um, what we've been through, and in particular what women have been through, is going to take us all a long time move on from, and, and some people obviously more more influenced or, or hurt than others, but, you know, I talked earlier about something that after the trauma, I make different choices. I, I think I am more intentional about how I spend my time, and I could see that being one of the positives of coming out of COVID. There were people that were first forced out of the workforce. There were also people that had said, you know what? But they realized they never liked that job. <laughs> they realized they weren't doing something that was meaningful, and the pandemic brought that home, and a lot of people have changed careers voluntarily. Um, or they've yeah. been through a health care, and they're now taking better care of themselves. So, so I think some of those lessons and resilience about being really deliberate, about searching for something positive, about trying new things, um, those are really relevant regardless of the kind of trauma you suffer. Yeah, very much so. And I just wanted to, you know, make sure to bring that up because, you know, like you said, uh, trauma comes in many forms. And, you know, and uh, the body reacts. I'm, I'm not sure, <laughs> but they would think that the body would react to any kind of trauma with, with similar kinds of uh, biochemical and, and uh, also yep. um, emotional and mental uh, components. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, stress and pain really have an impact, yes, on your body, but also on your brain. And, you know, it doesn't need to be permanent, right? We can learn, and in a way, my body needed to learn what was dangerous and what was not. For months after the accident, if I was riding in a car and we went around a curve, I mean, I couldn't drive, of course, but if I was a passenger and, and we'd go around a curve, I was terrified. That feeling of rounding mm. the curve and it just brought back, back a flood of memories every time. Because I, I had been standing on the train when we went around that curve, and I felt this tip over, and I heard myself scream. You know, and then I went dark. I was unconscious for days. But, you know, I really, I had to retrain my body um, that, wait a minute, you know, this car is 35 miles an hour. It's not dangerous, and I'm okay. But it it, yeah. it took a while. It really took a while. <laughs> you turned your eyes short. <laughs> it took me a lot longer. Uh, well, you know, Carolyn, this has really been, I really enjoyed speaking to you. It's really been a treat, and I want to thank you. Time. Now, is there any maybe final words that you might want to uh, tell the, the listeners um, who may have the feeling that they're, they've experienced trauma? 
Yeah. You know, I would say my, my last message, and thank you so much for the opportunity to share my story. I hope it helps someone else, and I really appreciate what you're doing to share so many incredible people's stories. Um, but I would say one of the real keys is staying optimistic, but also realistic. You know, we've got to stay positive. You've got to believe it'll get better because it will. But you've also got to be realistic. I was wildly unrealistic at the beginning. I kept calling my boss saying I'd be back in six weeks, which everybody knew was ridiculous, but not me. <laughs> and, and then when I didn't make it back to work six weeks, I thought I had failed. And so I kind of set myself up for failure with these unrealistic expectations. And it, it took me a while to accept that this was going to be a recovery process that took years, not weeks. But I still didn't lose the optimism that I made it through. So that's my that's my you know kind of grounding principle is is that realistic optimism is important. Realistic optimism, I, I, and you have earned it. Leaps and bounds, guarantee. Well, Jim, thank you for your time. Um, I really appreciate you spending it with us and sharing your story. To your listener. Thank you. Again, everyone, today, my special guest is Geraldine Ritter. We have been talking about her new book, Bone by Bone, a memoir of trauma and healing. And again, you can find out more by visiting her website, which is www.geraldineritter.com. That's G-E-R-A-L-Y-N-R-I-T-T-E-R.com. And I, everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Ursa. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit byteradio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.